Um, as many of you know, Pastor Fran, our associate pastor, is in the Holy Land with a huge group here from the church and, and a big group from um, just South Georgia Conference. So Pastor Mark is teaching in the traditional service. Um, so if anybody wants to exit and, and go there, now is the time. Um, no offense taken, I promise. Um, but yeah, so, so they asked me to come and share today. So we're just going to jump right in. We are in the middle of this series called Resilient. And it is stories of courage from a generation in exile. And and as Mark and Fran have both shared over the last few weeks, this series, it came about last fall. Um, Fran went on a conference, ran across this book. It's called Faith for Exiles. And and she brought it back to the staff and she said, I want to begin this conversation. And so last fall, the, the staff read it. And uh, we began discussing, and kind of what this book hits on is this idea that how do we, in what they refer to as a digital Babylon, so this super-saturated information age, how can we live lives um, that, are, that are in this culture but are, are still red-hot passionate for Jesus? So how do we live in the midst of all the things pulling us a a trillion different directions and still shine a light brightly for Jesus. And so we as a staff got together and we began discussing the relevancy of this topic. We felt it was a very important discussion as it pertains to our church, but specifically as it pertains to sharing the love of Jesus with lost people. Because that's what church is about, right? Like it's about coming and, and, and worshiping and being encouraged and connecting to God. But if we're not taking that hope and grace and love and joy into the world where there are broken, lost people, then we're kind of missing the point. And so that was kind of where the discussion led us. And, and I'm going to be honest, I, um, I'm not the brightest. <laughs> so when we got this book and, and, you know, Fran began kind of dissecting it, I realized that there were a lot of words that because I grew up in a church, uh, you know, and kind of Christendom, I was like, oh yeah, sure, that word. But I really didn't understand what it meant or the depth behind it. So I I had to do a little bit of history and understanding before I could really understand some of the concepts within this book. And so I'm going to take a second and I'm going to break it down just a little bit because it helped me understand the story. So I mentioned digital Babylon. Babylon is literally a city of exile. It is the the dark period of history where the the Israelites uh, were were moved out of Jerusalem, their hometown where God's temple is. They they were conquered. Jerusalem was conquered, and they were brought into exile in, in Babylon. And this is because they weren't good people, and I'll hit on that in a second. But but they were driven out of the holy city Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Pastor Mark talked about him last week, and you guys might be familiar, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the whole bow down furnace thing. Mark shared us that story last week. But, but, but literally, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he conquered Jerusalem, and then he carried all of the Israelites off to Babylon. And, and we find out later in Jeremiah that, that those who didn't go died. So those were, those were what happened. And and when I say the Israelites weren't good people, here's kind of a, a little bit of that. So um, Fran shared, I think when we first started a couple weeks ago, um, about Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah was the prophet of Israel right before the Israelites were taken into captivity. 
And we read how far the Israelites had strayed from the Lord. In fact, Jeremiah 19, uh, verse 1 to 6, he's speaking of the the horrors of the Israelite people. And and the Israelites had been known at at this season, right before the exile began, to to take their children to, uh, it's called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which in, in kind of today's terminology would be considered like the Jerusalem dump. And they would offer their children as living sacrifices to the the gods of Baal. And so Jeremiah here, he's he's calling them out. He's saying, guys, this is not okay. God is not okay with this. We need to repent. We need to turn away. We We need to go before the Lord and make it right. And then we read further on here in Jeremiah 20 where the chief priest of the temple of God. Now, mind you, this is the Israelite temple of God. The chief priest, his name is Peshur. He, he was so put out by Jeremiah's rebuke that he had Jeremiah beaten and put in jail. He said, you can't tell us. Who are you, Jeremiah? And so that's where we read here, Jeremiah 20, verse 4. He, he tells the people of Israel, he said, I will hand all Judah over to the king of Babylon, and he will carry all of the Israelites away, and, and, and those that he doesn't, they will be put to the sword. So exile or death, that is where we are when we talk about the the initial Israelite exile. So for me, that helped me kind of understand, like I said, this this idea of how does this all fit into the picture. But but as I get started today, I want to let you know, obviously, the focus of this series, it's not on exile, and it's not on the evilness of the Israelites, and it's not on all the things they did wrong. Instead, the highlight of of this series, the highlight of these messages is the incredible stories of courage, the stories of bravery, the unmatched faith of a few who, while in exile, a foreign land with, with different cultures and different customs and surrounded by gods that were not their own, they shone a light for Jesus. The folks who, who took the torch and, and pointed it back towards the one true God, and they said, in the face of persecution, in the face of trial, my God is, my God will, and my God can. That's what these folks were saying. And they said, and I will wait until he does. And they began putting action and plan behind that faith. This whole series of resilient It's talking about those people who said, hey, in the midst of a hard foreign culture that is not our own, we still choose to worship God and shine a light that glorifies him. And so today as I get started, I'm going to share with you um, this this interesting story of of exile and and this this woman. But before I do, I'm just going to take a quick second and pray. My brain is kind of all over the place, and so I just need to breathe and just calm down. Father, I invite you into this place. Father, just even as I woke up early this morning and I just, I've had this energy and this hype in my spirit, Father, and I just, I give that to you. And I say, Lord, I believe that today you have a timely message for your people and I am humbled to be the one to help deliver it. So God, I pray that you would soften our hearts. God, for those of us that you are calling into action, Father, that we would hear you, that we would be moved by you. Father, I pray that every word shared and spoken today, Lord, would bring you honor. Um, God, that it wouldn't be about my agenda, that it wouldn't be about my idea, Father, but that it would be your word spoken aloud to your people. Father, I thank you and I praise you. Amen. So today, as I continue this conversation about those resilient in the face of exile, um, I'm going to share with you a story of a woman 
who was impacted by somebody who went before her. And it was his faith and his wisdom that influenced her. And because of that, she was able to, to move a generation. She was able to, to save a nation and impact thousands of people to follow her, impact where we are today. And this is the story of Queen Esther. So the book of Esther, now I'm also going to give you this disclaimer. Um, I'm going to be sharing with you the story of Esther today out of my words. So this is not, there's, there's going to be verses that I'm going to be sharing with you, but I want to make it very clear. I am telling you the story. So there's going to be bits and pieces that I might leave out and I don't want to discredit the word of God. So I encourage you go and read it. This is going to be Esther 1, 2, and 3. So, so make that a thing this week if you'd like to, but I just want to make sure you know this is my words about the story. So we start out in Queen Esther with this queen named Vashti. And poor Vashti. Here's kind of what happens. Queen Vashti is the, the queen of King Xerxes. And, and where we are here, King Xerxes, they just had a battle that he won. And so he's having a big party in his kingdom. And he invites all of these royal officials and, and nobles and, and different warriors and all these things. And they eat a lot and they drink a lot. And they're just in the moment. And in the middle of this big grand party, he beckons Vashti to come before them. Well, she refused. She said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. And so King Xerxes took that as a, you know, a, he, he was dishonored in the face of all his buddies. So he just banishes her like she is no more. And, um, and this is where Esther joins the story. So for the sake of history and a little bit of what I've already shared with you, because this is how my brain works, I want to paint where this fits in this idea of exile. When Esther comes on the scene, it is about 100, 103 years after the initial exile began. So about 103 years after uh, Jerusalem was sieged, after the temple was burned and all the Israelites were moved into exile in Babylon is where Esther kind of joins the picture. But then my brain was like, okay, we have Babylon, we have Persia, what, what are the things? How does that work? So I did a little research. Thank you, uh, my life application Bible. And I found out this. Um, about 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar seized Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon began, Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, overthrew Babylon. And so Babylon then became kind of a big, you know, Persia just kind of took it all over and it became a superpower and all that kind of thing. And we read about in, in the book of Ezra how God softened Cyrus's heart and, and Cyrus began allowing the Jews the option of returning to Jerusalem. That was about 70 years after they had been in exile. So, so some, some Jews did. Actually, it says about 50,000 Jews went for the first kind of group back to Jerusalem. About 50,000 Jews went back under um, what is uh, Zerubbabel, I think I'm saying his name right, um, to begin building the temple. But not all the Jews did. And, and as was prophesied in Jeremiah 29, you know, when the exile was beginning, God told the Israelites, they said, hey, build your houses there. This is 29, five to seven. Build houses, make yourselves at home in Babylon. Put in gardens, eat what grows in the country, marry and have children, encourage your children to marry and have children. He says this in verse seven, make yourselves at home there 
and work for the country's well-being. Pray for Babylon. And if things go well for Babylon, then things will go well for you. So that's where we find Esther. You know, a, a lot of folks did return to Jerusalem, but not all of them did. They settled in. They, they kind of dug down in. They made their roots there. And so we find out with Esther that she is a Jew. She's from the tribe of Benjamin, and she was an orphan. So she was taken in by her cousin, Mordecai, and we learn that Mordecai was a Jewish official. Um, so at this time in history, again, about 100 years after the initial exile, Jews had been given freedoms, right? Some, some great freedoms. They were running businesses. They, they could hold positions in government. Um, and Mordecai was such a man of position within his community. He was living in the land of Persia. As a Jew, he might have been considered sort of an outsider, just you know, kind of a, of, a, of a different community, but he was accepted and respected in his town. And so they begin picking a new queen. This is chapter two. We hear how um, after King Xerxes kind of, you know, after the party, he kind of wakes up a little bit, maybe sobers up a little bit, I'm not sure. But, but it tells us in, ch in chapter two that he begins to doubt, oh no, what did I do to Queen Vashti? Did I make a rash decision? And then it tells us that he has his, um, his wise counsel come around him and say, hey, we have a plan. Listen to our plan. And this is where we read, this is Esther 2, verse 2 to 4. They say, King, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then the young woman who pleases the king will be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So he was like, shoot, yeah, this is a great plan. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've read the book of Esther. Um, I don't know, maybe eight times, nine times in my life where I've read the book of Esther. And every time that I've read this part, I've read it sort of through the lens of like reality TV. And here's what I mean by that. It's this idea that like, I'm assuming it's like a newspaper article, right? Like it's like a glossy spread in a magazine, like calling all pretty girls, like they, like they could come and audition to be the queen. But as I read this passage, and as we read the Bible and understand a little bit more of the culture and context within which Esther is written, there is a likelihood that that was not the case. Uh, when royal commissioners, chapter 2 says that he sends out royal commissioners with the king's decree to find beautiful young girls, and as 2 verse 8 says, bring them back, it, it makes me wonder how much choice these young girls had. It makes me wonder, I mean, when the royal commissioner says, you're pretty, you must come, do they have the option of saying no? Do they have the option of turning down a direct decree from the king? I mean, you remember what he did to Vashti when she disappointed him, right? So, so I share that because it's gonna kind of tie into where we are later in the story. Now, going on in, in chapter 2, we, we learn that Esther, because of her beauty and form, was selected to go to the king's harem, where all the young girls lived. So basically, this is a building outside of you know, the castle, if you will, and, and, and it's where all of these young women would come, and, and they were given 12 months of beauty regiments and fancy foods and oils and baths and you know like I picture like the fans and all that kind of stuff. Like they had the royal treatment 
for 12 months. And, and, and under Mordecai's strict instruction, remember Mordecai is her older, wiser cousin. He says, Esther, he said, do not share your nationality. Do not tell them who you are. And oh, he also says, do not tell them your family background. Don't let them know we're related. So at the harem, as I said, 12 months of beauty treatments. And, and then after the 12 months, the girls were to be made available to the king at his will. So, uh, and, and the young girl who gained the approval of the king was then like dubbed queen, like you win. And, you know, as I was reading this and writing this, I was just thinking kind of like modern day bachelor a little bit, like just this idea of like winning, you know, winning that, the, the eyes of the king. Um, and remember, as we're talking about Esther, and, and I shared this little bit of history, she is a hundred years removed from the initial exile, but she was indeed a daughter of the exile. Her, her ancestors were directly affected by the exile. And while they chose not to return to Jerusalem, you know, they made their home in Susa, they were still Jews. They, they were still living in community together. They still went to synagogue together. They would still be observing the, the festivals together, the traditions together. And so her story, Queen Esther, she starts out clashing from what would be considered a, a right and proper upbringing of a young Hebrew girl in, in, the, in the harem of the king. Living in this culture and time and, and in her surroundings, you know, the book of Esther, it tells us the story of this beautiful young girl. She's living in a land that is not her own because her people were, were you know, driven out of their homeland. She's supposed to live this hidden identity. Don't tell anybody who you are, or what family you belong to. And she is trying to humbly catch the eye of a foreign king. And I say humbly because we learn about that in Esther's story. But here's the great part. She wins, right? She, the Bible tells us that she pleased his eunuch and all the other attendants. She goes before King Xerxes. He is pleased with her, and he picks her, and she is now crowned queen. Yay, Esther. And, and we hear that she still keeps close connection with, with Mordecai. We read that, that her and Mordecai still stay close and connected. Uh, of course, uh, distanced because of the secret. They don't, Mordecai doesn't want her to know or doesn't want others to know that they're related. Um, and so now moving forward, here we go, Esther chapter 3. So Vashti is no longer queen. We go through the whole beauty situation. Esther is now queen. And we're picking up at chapter 3 in Esther. Enter Haman. Okay, Haman is not the good guy. And, and this is where the story kind of gets saucy. It starts to, to heat up a little bit. Uh, King Xerxes elevates Haman to second in command. So his number two, higher than all other nobles, has, has basically, it's the king and then Haman. So he has a lot of power. He has a lot of clout. And scripture tells us in chapter three that all the other royal officials at the king's gate bowed down to Haman to pay him honor all but Mordecai. Now, there's probably a couple reasons for this. Uh, number one, I mentioned Haman wasn't a good guy, and Mordecai probably saw that, so that's number one. Number two, uh, and Mark spoke to this a little bit last week, um, as, as was true of Jewish tradition, they did not bow down to anybody except the one true God. We heard about that last week, you know, the whole King Nebuchadnezzar, here's a gold statue, bow down, I'm going to throw you in the furnace if you don't. And what did they say? We won't bow down. And so here is Haman. And yes, he, he is, you know, the, of, of royal standing and fancy and all important. 
Mordecai said, oh, no, I, we can't do that. You're not, you're not the one true God. And, and so that's number two. Number three, I learned this. Um, uh, Haman, his ancestors were the ancient enemies of the Jews. The Amalekites, you, you hear a lot about them in, in the Old Testament, and there is a hatred with the Israelites that is well-documented. Well war after war after war between the Israelites and the Amalekites. So, so that's kind of reason number three. Mordecai's like, we're not, we're not going to mesh well. doesn't bow down. It helps us understand the, Haman's next actions, because I'm sure ha Haman knows that Mordecai is a Jew, and Haman knows these things as well. That He, he knows Jews don't bow. He, he knows that the Amalekites and, and the Israelites aren't buddies. He knows all these things, but, but Mordecai's refusal to honor him is what fuels him into his next steps. It made him so angry what Mordecai stood for. Um, and not just because Mordecai was, you know, he, he was power. I think Haman was power hungry, but there was also this idea that it was the Jews' dedication to God as the one true authority. Um, and, and so Haman sets this evil plan in place and, and, and he kind of goes and, and, and goes before the king and he, he I don't want to say tricks the king, but he doesn't tell the whole truth. And, and chapter three, verse eight to 11, he speaks of this scattered people living in, in his land. And, and, and he says their customs and their ways, King Xerxes, they're different than ours and, and, and they disobey your laws. Well, as, as the king's second in command, surely Xerxes is like, well, well we can't have that. We can't have people, we can't have an uprising. We can't have bad people in our land. And so Haman is speaking of the Jews and, and King Xerxes says, well, well, let's take care of it. Let's, what's your plan? And so Haman begins to explain, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and the king takes off his signet ring and he hands it to Haman. And he says, okay, make it, make it happen. Let's take care of it. And so Haman sets this royal plan in place he sends a royal decree into all the provinces of Persia that all Jews, all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day were to be annihilated. And all of their property was to be plundered. So remember, when I say the provinces of Persia, that would have included the land of Israel. So had Haman's plan actually been carried out all of God's chosen people could have been exterminated. All of them, wiped out. So Haman brings in the royal secretaries and, and with the, the king's decree, has it written in every language in the provinces of Persia so that everyone will clearly understand what is to happen. Signs it with the king's seal, sends it out by royal courier. And then scripture tells us that he sits down and has a drink with the king, right? Plan is in place. And here's another interesting, interesting point. The scripture says that the city of Susa, all the people were bewildered. Not just the Jews, not just the people who were affected by it, but it says the whole city of Susa was bewildered. Remember, at this point in history, the Jews are experiencing freedoms and opportunities. They are operating as functioning, contributing members of, of this society, so all of a sudden, the king issues a degree to annihilate an entire people group? Like the town is like, what is happening? Am I safe? Like, like what is going on here? And Mordecai just loses it. 
Scripture tells us that he, he goes out into the city, he rips his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he covers himself in ashes. He is in mourning. He is in deep grief. And Esther catches wind of, of how sad Mordecai is. And she's like, well, send him food and give him some clothes. And, and Mordecai refuses it. And so then she sends a messenger out and she said, find out what the deal is. And so Mordecai, he, he spells it out to the messenger exactly. He says, this is what's happening. And then he sends a copy of the decree that Haman had sent out so that Esther could see it. And then he said one more thing. Will you go before the king? Will you beg for mercy and plead for your people? Now, at this part of the story, Esther is mightily conflicted, right? I mean, again, remember what happened to Queen Vashti the last go around. I mean, she has that in her brain. And then Esther also knows it was common law that if anybody came before the king without being invited, they were put to death, period, end of story. They had to be invited to come before the king. So um, the only saving grace would be if, if the king would extend his gold scepter and excuse the interruption. So, and third part, no one knows she's a Jew, right? Like she was been told, keep your identity secret. So now she's supposed to interrupt the king uninvited. She's supposed to reveal the big secret, which is her identity. Sure, Mordecai, no problem. I can do, you know, I think she's mightily conflicted at this moment of the story. So she sends a message back to Mordecai telling him all the things, <laughs> all the things he probably already knows. And she's like, hello, let's introduce plan B because surely plan A does not seem like it's going to work well. And, 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 and here's where it is. This is the gold moment in the whole story. And sadly, I have overlooked it so many times. And part of that is I think about Esther's action. I think about what Esther did, and, and it was important. It was huge. But I overlooked the incredible faith of Mordecai in the story. Because here we are, chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai tells her, he says, Esther, and this is again through the messenger, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. See, as a faithful Jew, Mordecai knew the prophecies. Mordecai knew the plans that were in store for God's people. He knew the promise of the Messiah that would be coming out of Israel. He knew a divine deliverance was coming. He had faith in that. That wasn't the question. What he didn't know was if the deliverance would come through Esther's obedience. What he didn't know was if Esther was brought. Remember that word I shared with you earlier? Was she brought into this situation, maybe against her will? Was she in this spot for such a time as this, pushed outside the standards and norms of her people and their beliefs, immersed in a foreign culture, so that the divine deliverance of God, which Mordecai knew was coming, might come through her? He said, oh, no, no, it's okay, Esther. God will deliver us. But what if it's through you that he will deliver us? I think it was the faith of Mordecai, the belief in God's working and relevance in the midst of this foreign culture and foreign generation that pushed Esther into action. We hear in chapter four, Esther, she, she calls on Mordecai. She sends a message back and she said, okay, 
Tell, tell God's people to fast and pray for three days. We'll do the same. And she sets up this plan, and we hear how she won the heart of her king. She won his favor by serving him and by honoring him. That's where we get that humble word I shared earlier. She lavished on her king praise and adoration in, in the form of banquets. And, and the king keeps coming. He said, what, do you, what can I do for you? How, how can I show you how much I love you? And, and she, she then lays it out. She explains Hammond and his corrupt plan. She, she reveals her identity as a Jew, and she begs Xerxes for mercy for her and her people. And he granted it. It was awesome. And then he killed Hammond. I mean, just took that job. And, and, and that is this little bit of the story in just a nutshell. But as I, I share this, this story of, of resilient women in the face of, of exile, living in a land that was not her own, in a culture that had become her own, uh, faced with the opportunity to just freak out and hunker down and just like, okay, who else is going to fix it? Who, who else will, will make it happen? Like, why, why would I have to, to do the hard thing and, 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 and maybe it not work out? Mordecai set the stage for Esther to save a nation. Mordecai set the stage for Esther to to follow her. Now, Mordecai knew God was going to deliver them. It wasn't this idea of like, well, Esther, it's all up to to you, it's on your shoulders. No, Mordecai had a faith in God, but he painted a picture of God's faithfulness, of God's deliverance, of God's light, and what appeared to be a very dark situation for God's people. It was the one who went before Esther, the belief, the support, the faith, the wisdom of Mordecai that pushed Esther into action, and that is what changed the fate of generations. Back, you know, in the fall when we, uh, the staff, we got away and we took, took a day to, to break apart the book and um, we were all there. We had our chapters, like, you know, like how you read a book and then you read a book and you have to like flip it over because like that's the kind of read, like th this was the kind of reading we did, you know, and highlighted and, 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 and ear tagged the pages. The chapter that I was assigned, uh, chapter three, it's a long title, but it says, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, Forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Ah, this was my jam. Like I knew I was going to do this chapter justice. It was right up my alley. And, and what, what it begins with is describing our culture and talking about how we are a self-serve, do-it-myself, make-it-on-my-own kind of society. And I think we can relate to that. But then it began to kind of connect how the church can operate in that same realm. How at church, we, are, we share just enough, but not too much to get into the vulnerable, right? How at church, we, we take in the environment of the room before we decide how safe it is to worship the one true God, the God who paid it all for us, the God who did all the things for us and picked us up out of the dark places we were. I want to take in how everybody else does it before I worship him. Are we a hand-raising kind of church? Are we a clapping kind of church, right? We need to, to feel like we can fit in and find the standard. And the model of, of habitual, ritual churchgoers. How, because we operate in the digital bubbles, and I say digital bubbles where we can tailor our browsers 
right? Our suggested content. You know, like it's crazy. You search something on Google and then all of a sudden on Facebook, like a suggestion pops up and you're like, weird how that works, right? The influencers that we surround ourselves with. And it's how we allow ourselves to determine how we do community with others. But what this book began asking and, and the questions that we as a staff kind of begin walking through is what if we were to look beyond that? What, what if, you know, we were to call upon the Mordecais that have gone before us instead of name calling, right? Boomers versus millennials, the greatest generation, ver you know, versus where we are today, the, the Xers. What if we decided to truly model God's desire for church and community? where it wasn't about us and them, it wasn't about um, mine and theirs, could we change the face of our culture? Could we change the tra trajectory of the generation to follow us? Because it's not about, forget about what, you know, they, they don't know what they're talking about. They, they don't know how, how to do the things, how to check the stuff, how to update. How, you know, it, it, we're, we're too separate. But no, Mordecai and Esther gave us this model sought what they had and, and, and took in the wisdom and the faith of those that have gone before us so that those that are to come after us can glean from what we have learned from them. It's funny because in your bulletin, the scripture, uh, I'll share it now, it's the first time I'm doing it in this sermon. Psalm 78, three to four, it's in the message. It says, stories we heard from our fathers, counsel we learned at our mother's knee. We're not keeping this to ourselves. We're passing it along to the next generation. God's fame and God's fortune, fortune, the marvelous things he has done. And when I read that passage and I think about those that have gone before me, I think about those who have influenced me. I think about um, my grandfather. I think about um, my sixth grade small group leader. And I am in a place of ministry today because of those who have pushed me forward to have a plan for you. And, and because of that, I think about the different youth that I've had the privilege of pouring into, the different kids that I've had the, the, the privilege of speaking life into. It's not about me and mine and my bubble, but God is calling us into this community where we can look at at this intergenerational picture of all of us together bringing glory and honor to God. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about us. Stories we heard from our fathers, counsel we learned from our mothers, all for God's fame and God's fortune. That is the community. That is what God is calling us to. So as we function in this crazy culture that we live in, at times, you know, we hear that a lot. It's really, there's a lot going on or uh, the, the unrest and unease. That doesn't change the faithfulness and light of God in us. And we get to decide how we are going to shine that light into this world.